that Hodge and Warfield defined themselves not as innovators but custodians of the truth once delivered. And I think that's one of the reasons that Princeton lasted as long as it did. They didn't have this compulsion to do something new, but rather to teach and uh, develop exegetically the faith that's been once and for all delivered to the saints. And so uh, it's, a, I think, a glorious task of a Reformed theologian to go back and search the scriptures and seek to help God's people better uh, understand and defend uh, the faith. And we have a tremendous treasure uh, in the writings of the fathers to be able to do that. With respect to uh, questions, so some people are coming up with, to me privately with questions, and that's great. Uh, we could, uh, perhaps as part of the fellowship in the evenings, uh, if you have a question you want to throw out then, and I believe there will be a question and answer time uh, briefly after the uh, closing message on Friday morning. So those would be uh, some, some ways. And then a, um, a, a teenager very graciously corrected me, and he knows how to do it. He didn't say you were wrong. He said, didn't you mean to say the fifth commandment? Isn't that great? He's a well-trained young man. Um, yes, I did mean to say the fifth commandment when I talked about children honor your fathers and your mothers and not the sixth commandment. But thank you for uh, reminding me that I said the sixth and not the fifth. Let's pray. Our Father, we again praise your name for this time that we have together in fellowship and encouragement, and uh, rest and relaxation of this beautiful place. And Lord, even as uh, Moses speaks of the dew distilling and the rain falling, being that like your speech that um, comes down upon your church, that even as this fog waters the earth, might your spirit, uh, through the words of uh, this message, uh, water and instruct us, your people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <coughs> this morning we are looking at the moral character of the Sabbath commandment. And in the previous hour we sought to establish that it is a creation ordinance which is pre-fall and thus is for all men. Another person pointed out to me that I'd been saying that this was that the moral law of God is for God's people. It is, but the moral law of God is for all people. And we will come back to that with respect to uh, the Sabbath back in, in this message. But thus, it transcends uh, the covenant administrations. Uh, it transcends fall, uh, non-fall uh, type situation. Uh, the Sabbath is to be observed by uh, all people, but particularly the purpose of the Sabbath that we're looking at can only be observed by those who are in Christ, and thus the Sabbath continues to be a perpetual obligation on the church. I remind you of how it's stated in the Confession of Faith, chapter 21, paragraph 7. It's, I don't know if it's the back of these hymnals or not. <clears throat> As it is of the law of nature that in general a due proportion of time be set apart for the worship of God, so in his word, and notice this language, by a positive, moral, and perpetual commandment, 
binding all men in all ages. He hath particularly appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath to be kept holy unto him, which from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ was the last day of the week, and from the resurrection of Christ was changed into the first day of the week, which in Scripture is called the Lord's Day and is to be continued to the end of the world as the Christian Sabbath. Now, you see that it's positive, moral, and perpetual. And the positive shows that there's positive aspects as the day can be changed, but it's also moral and perpetual, this obligation of the Sabbath. And this brings us then to the um, fourth commandment, as we find it particularly in Exodus 20, uh, verses 8 through 11. I think that uh, for some reason we only have printed here 9, uh, through 11. Uh, let's read uh, Exodus 20, 8 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or female servant, or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now, last night we looked at the Sabbath through the figure of uh, a wonderful park that God has uh, created and designed for his people to have fellowship with him and each other and for the public uh, means of grace. This morning I'd like to use another figure that uh, the Puritans uh, developed with respect to uh, the Sabbath, and that is that they called it the market day of the soul. Now if you know anything about um, uh, medieval and uh, early uh, Reformation history, <coughs> say in England, you recognize that the, the market day was a very significant day in the culture. Uh, and uh, there would be market towns. That's how uh, a town like uh, Cambridge grew up. It first was a market town before it was a university. And the market towns would be in various counties and regions. And there would be one day then in the week that would be market day. And on market day, the uh, craftsmen, the, uh, the farmers, the housewives, everybody uh, would descend on the town for market day. Everything else was laid aside that they might come uh, and do the transactions of uh, market day. And because it was a day set aside for special transactions, the Puritans then uh, uh, adapted the phrase or coined it to apply to uh, the Sabbath, which is the market day of the soul. It's the time when we turn aside from our other uh, lawful responsibilities to enjoy special uh, transactions with God. And that's how I would like for us this morning to think about uh, the fourth commandment and thus, I think, get a better feel uh, for not only what it requires but then for the prohibitions that it also establishes. So we look at the fourth commandment under this rubric of the market day of the soul, and we consider two things, the order of the day and the ordering 
of the day. The order of the day is expressed in the opening uh, phrase of the commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And we've already established that it's God who made the Sabbath day holy. We'll come back to that under the basis of the commandment. But here we're told that uh, uh, the purpose of the seventh day Sabbath is to remember the Sabbath day. Now, what does it mean to remember something? Well, obviously, the first thing that comes to mind if we're going to remember something is that we're not to forget it. And uh, the word remember is used this way uh, with respect to uh, special events uh, in the Old Testament. I, you find it used in Exodus with respect to the, um, the, the act of the Exodus itself. <clears throat> As, uh, for example, in Exodus 13.3, Remember this day in which you went out from Egypt. Um, and here we have the idea of, of not forgetting. And oftentimes, God calls his people to remember the, the great acts of God or um, the ceremonies that God has set aside and established for his people. Now, this in itself, at least to me, implies that the people knew about the Sabbath and that it was uh, already a ordinance that was revealed in Genesis chapter 2, if it's something they're not to forget. This is not a new commandment. This is the commandment that they are supposed to be actively remembering and thus observing. Which brings us to the second concept that is involved in remember, and that is, in the Bible, the idea of remember is to observe or to celebrate. We use the word that way, don't we? You'll ask the husband, did you remember your anniversary? Oh yeah, it's uh, August the 7th. Well, what did you do? Well, what do you mean, what did I do? I went to work. Well, then you didn't really remember. Well, of course I remembered. I, I just told you it was August the 7th because we use the word, did you remember an anniversary or a birthday? Did you celebrate it? Did you do something special? Uh to commemorate that day. And, and the word remember is used uh, that way um, in, again, Exodus uh, chapter 12, verse 14. Uh, now this day, again referring to the Passover, will be a memorial to you and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. And what we read there in Exodus 3.13, remember this day in which you went out from the Egypt from the house of slavery um, for by the powerful hand of the Lord. And then he goes on in the context to talk about serving God on that day. Uh, verse 10, therefore you shall keep this ordinance at its appointed time from year to year. At its appointed time from year to year. And so... Uh, to remember is to observe. That's why in the uh, second uh, uh, giving of the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy chapter 5, in fact, the word observe is used and not remember. And there God tells his people and us to observe uh, the seventh day. So this is a day that is a special day. It is a day of remembrance. 
It is a day of remembering the day, but remembering what the day stands for, as we saw in uh, Genesis chapter 2, remembering what God did on this day, uh, remembering that God is creator, remembering that it is in God that we find our rest and delight, remembering that God has established for us an eternal rest that we shall enjoy and share with Him. But because this remembering is focusing on these great acts of God and on this day, it entails then a celebration and observance of the day. And really what we're talking about is observance of the things that we are to do in the day. It's not the day itself that is set aside. Oh, this is a special day like Memorial Day, I can do whatever I wanted, I can go for a family picnic. No, to remember the day is then to uh, celebrate uh, the great acts of God that are themselves commemorated in that day, namely creation and redemption. For us in the New Testament, a redemption that is accomplished and declared complete in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we think of the order of the day, we're given this day then to remember God and His mighty works. And the basis of the commandment, as we find it here in Exodus chapter 20, is twofold. Not surprisingly, the commandment is rooted in the creation ordinance. And there's no way to get around this as we read in verse 11. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now here the ground of having this day in which we remember, observe the day by remembering and, and, and worshiping God, uh, is the ground of it is the Sabbath commandment. Both God's action uh, himself on the day and what God did to the day. That as God labored six days, so then we are to labor six days. And then God rested on the seventh day. We are to rest on the seventh day. And that is confirmed here in the fourth command by the fact that God blessed and sanctified the day. And again, I mentioned that the language pushes us to see the seventh day and the creation ordinance then as a specific day. It is this day that God rested is the day that he blessed and sanctified. And as I said earlier, he didn't bless his perpetual rest. God's eternal rest needs no blessing or sanctification. It's blessed and sanctified by the fact that it's God's eternal rest. But it's this day, says the fourth commandment, that God blessed and sanctified because God worked six days and rested on the seventh day. And so the commandment is rooted in the creation ordinance, just as the seventh commandment is rooted in the creation ordinance of marriage. This is not a new commandment. It's merely now the ordering of that commandment for the life of the covenant people as we find it here in uh, the seventh commandment. And so we have this theological foundation that's very important. It's rooted in God's work and in God's Revelation. But Moses gives us a second basis of this commandment in Exodus chapter 20. And that is that God himself 
has a proprietary interest in the day. Uh, It is his day in a special way. Verse 10, or take uh, 9 and 10 together. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. Of the Lord your God. You see, it belongs to him. Now again, all of life belongs to God. We recognize that. And Moses understood that. God understood that. But it's God who said, six days I've given you to do your thing. Now, people like Murray take that as a commandment to work six days. I take it in a broader way as the concession. I've given you six days. And everything that you need to do, your work, your pleasure, your recreation, you've got six days to do your thing, to do your work. But the seventh day is mine. That's what God is saying, isn't it? It's the Sabbath of the Lord your God. That's why it's called His day in Isaiah 58. His holy day. And that's why it's called the Lord's day, as we'll see later in the week in Revelation chapter 1. It belongs to Him in a peculiar manner. And thus it is the market day. He is the Lord of the land, and we are the tenant. And this is the day of reckoning. This is the day of accounting. Just as people would go up to market day, they would often meet with the, the Lord of the manor house. They might settle their accounts. They might uh, pay him his, his rent uh, or their taxes or whatever. And it was a day for transactions. And he was, as Lord of the land, was Lord of the day. And, and, and what the Lord is saying here, this is a day for transactions with me. It's my day. And thus, by that very language, he shows a proprietary interest. It's his in a peculiar way because he's appointed it as the day for meeting with him. I uh, keep trying to read new things. I've been plowing through Thomas uh, Shepherd's book uh, on uh, the Sabbath and the largest section there is on the fact that this is a um, a, a moral commandment. And I forgot what I was going to tell you about that. <laughs> it's a moral commandment. Uh, but we're talking about the uh, uh, proprietary interest of the Lord today. My mind just went totally blank. You can erase that part of the tape, okay, Steve? <laughs> It'll come back to me sometime. I'll manage to work it in. <laughs> hmm. Anyway, the second basis is God's proprietary interest in the day. He is the Lord of the day, and thus it belongs to him in a special way. I remember. Uh, what, he, what we're hearing today, and it's interesting because you, you read the stuff that Thomas Shepard was dealing with in the antinomianism, it was exactly the same arguments that we're hearing now with respect to the Sabbath. All time is special. No day is different. All days are holy. And in fact, really all that's involved in the fourth commandment is that we worship God. But if that's all, what Shepherd says, if that's all that's involved in the fourth commandment, that we worship God, then what's unique about it? That's involved in the first commandment. You see? Uh, that's what's really at the heart of the first commandment is that we not only have no other gods, but that we love and serve this God as our God. 
And he points out that what's peculiar to the fourth commandment is that there must be a time of worship. A time of worship. You see, if it's just that we worship God, we understand the distractions of the day, don't we? I mean, even sometimes with, with my own Bible reading and prayer in the morning, you know, I'm, I'm bombarded by all the things that I need to do. And my mind wanders in prayer. I think I've got an appointment or a class to teach. Or, and you have the same thing. Those of you that are not in the ministry have it even more difficult than those of us in ministry because you've got to be there at another job. They're totally often disconnected in terms of, of your mental or physical energy uh, from where you'd like to be meditating that morning in your Bible reading and prayer. And, and you see what God is doing here when he says, this is my day, it's a day for transactions with me. He has sanctified time. All time is sacred, but he sanctified a time and we're freed then. And that's what we're going to see as we go now to the second thing, the ordering of the day. Having looked at the order of the day, the commandment itself in its broad terms of remembrance basis, what then are we told to do? How do we remember the day? Well, it's expressed first positively and then negatively. It's expressed positively uh, when he says uh, in verse 8, remember the day to keep it holy. What he's saying is, I've sanctified the day. And uh, I want you now to observe the day and to remember the day and all that it entails by doing what? By keeping it holy. He set it aside for normal use to the special uses of worship. And what he's telling us here now is that we then must treat it in this manner. We must set it aside from the unnecessary, ordinary uses to the special uses of uh, divine worship, both publicly and privately, uh, and duties of Christian service and fellowship. And so we see again that this is a gift. It's a gift of God. And we fail when we, when we fail to understand that it's a gift of God. A very special and precious gift of God to set out a day that we can uh, treat differently. It is a weekly spiritual vacation. Now we all, at least most of us, enjoy a vacation, don't we? You're here this week on a vacation. It's a vacation with a purpose, and that's great. But you're here on vacation, and although uh, Lynn's got his cell phone and John's got his pager, uh, you know, we all would like to forget about life down there for this week. And if you get paged or called, there'll be some resentment. Huh? This is vacation. You know? Don't bug me. So John's off, Lynn's office manager is not going to call him unless the clinic burns down. So if he gets a phone call, you know he's immediately going to be scared. But, um, and what God has given us in one day out of seven is a spiritual vacation. When we can forget about everything else and enjoy Him and one another in Him. And so we again approach today positively, we keep it holy. And I quickly summarized for you last night what that entails. And the first thing that it entails in keeping the day holy 
and, and that the proper sanctification they depends upon this, and that is the heart finding its rest in Jesus Christ. I remind you of those beautiful words in the Heidelberg Catechism with respect to the fourth commandment, that all of the days of my life I rest from my evil works. Let the Lord work in me through his Holy Spirit, and so begin in this life the eternal Sabbath. And the first thing that be, that's emphasized here is the day reminds us that we cannot save ourselves, that we rest from our sins, we rest from our striving and our self-righteousness. We rest in Christ. And to remember the Sabbath day is to remember that uh, he is the mediator who has done the completed work, that he was delivered up for our transgressions and he was raised for our justification. And that as we're in him, he is to us from God, wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. And it's all been completed by the Lord Jesus Christ. And thus the Sabbath quickly takes us off of everything else and brings us back to our resting place. It is the capistrano for the swallow of our soul. But it's not annually, it's weekly that we return here to our resting place. We return here to be reminded of the fountain of grace and of the completed work of the Savior. I might just mention in passing that although some want to say that that's all the Heidelberg Catechism says, but you'll notice there's a progression of thought. I rest from my evil works. Let the Lord work in me through his Holy Spirit. In other words, a day for sanctification, not just a day to remember the theological principle. And if you read then the, uh, the commentary on the Heidelberg uh, Catechism that the Dendalk Foundation put out a few years ago, you'll see that it's Sabbatarian. Uh, through and through, just as the Westminster Standards. Uh, and this phrase is unpacked, what it means to let that sanctifying work take place in me. So there really is no dichotomy here between uh, the Dutch Calvinistic and the uh, British Calvinistic approach to the Sabbath. And we don't deal with it, but in the book I, I have a, ch a chapter on the history uh, of the Sabbath and its controversy and got some major quotations there from some of the continental and Dutch reformers. It is specious, it is fallacious, it is uh, just absolutely wrong to try to make this distinction between a continental view of the Sabbath as it's being described today as a continental view and the Westminster view of the Sabbath. The difference lay in how they got there. Uh, Calvin did not build his Sabbath keeping necessarily out of the moral requirement uh, with respect to the day. He thought the church could appoint the day, but in terms of what was done with that day, as I show you in that chapter, it was really no different. And uh, that's the thing that we have to, to realize and quit being intimidated by those that throw out this word of continental uh, Sabbath. Uh, ultimately, there was not a great deal of difference in the great majority of the reformers, at least it seems to me, uh, with respect to the Sabbath. But what we are reminded here in the Heidelberg Catechism is that uh, true Sabbath keeping, keeping the day holy, uh, is always the keeping the day as we are in Christ. And uh, waking up in the morning with the words of Calvin's hymn, I greet thee, whom I sure redeemer art. And this is the day that the Lord hath made. Let us be glad and rejoice in it. It is a day of glorious rejoicing and of communion 
with God, of meeting with Him in this market day of the soul. And on that spiritual basis, that we, we keep the Sabbath by faith as we seek to keep any of, and all of God's commandments, it is by faith in Christ and not by the dent of our own effort that we can keep the Sabbath. That we begin by rescuing Christ, letting the day draw us back to Christ, to the objective works, just as uh, God uh, declared creation uh, finished and would contemplate the beauty of the creation. Uh, the first day of the week reminds us that the objective work of redemption is finished and we now contemplate the beauty and glory of the, the majestic and grand work of God in the redemption of his elect. And so we begin there. And then on that, we keep the day holy uh, through uh, corporate worship, which I will seek to show you Friday morning is indeed the crowning act of all of Christian living and the crowning act of the Lord's Day. I think it's a shame that the church has fallen away from a second worship service for small groups or for nothing, when in fact there's nothing greater that we can do as the people of God than to assemble corporately in His presence to worship Him and to hear His Word preached. And then as we'll talk about this afternoon, the private duties that are entailed in the Sabbath. All this is a part of keeping the day holy. This is the purpose of the day. And a number of you have already responded to me very favorably. You appreciate that positive approach. And I think this is at times where we've gone astray. That uh, uh, the, the prohibitions become the end in themselves. And what we have to understand is the prohibitions are necessary. And we'll see a little bit more of that in just a moment. They're necessary because we're sinners. Uh, and we're selfish and self-centered and we're blind and we're corrupt and we're idolaters. But uh, they're necessary that we might be freed to do the necessary, which is to commune with God and to worship and serve Him uh, on this day in a peculiar manner. And so we see the day as a gift, not as something then to be dreaded. Just as we would see uh, chastity outside of marriage, not as some hindrance of God given to uh, young adults with uh, raging hormones in order to make them miserable. No, the call of chastity is a gift of God so that on your marriage night you'll understand, wow, wow, this is God's gift. Of course, there's the grace of God too, isn't it? And this is what's so wonderful because we really do have a new day in Christ that even if you were unchaste before you came to Christ or you fell into sin, that through pardon and renewal there still is a wow. It won't be as great a wow though. Uh, sin has consequences even though God will give us new lives and uh, he'll bring the wow back to life. But uh, God's commandments are never to make us unhappy. God's commandments keep the wow in life. True happiness is true holiness. And we need to keep this in mind as we move out of this, the negative part of, of the prohibitions. Because again, in talking to a number of you, as, we, as you responded to the positive, and I, we all recognize that there, there can be a legalistic mindset. We need to understand, though, what legalism is. Legalism is not precision. And I think sometimes in talking to some of you, 
that you perhaps are using the terms synonymously. Legalism is when either we add to the law of God man-made laws, or we think that by our law-keeping, we can get God's favor. We can placate God, or we can get God to love us or like us. And it's both a legalism and a works righteousness, and Christians can live with a legalistic mindset, thinking that obedience will cause God to like me. That's legalism. But I'm afraid that we often confuse legalism and precision. And that is a dangerous mistake. Now, we don't make it in other areas, do we? The person who is sexually precise about chastity is not by a sound Christian called a legalist. Now, I do re recognize that in evangelicalism there are those that would call the person that would abstain from fornication a legalist. I've, I've actually witnessed that through the, my young adult group when I pastored in Houston. They, they, there was people in my singles group in the church that would come to me and say, Pastor, you know, I have Christian friends that tell me I'm a legalist because I believe I shouldn't have sex outside of marriage. But a sound Christian truly wouldn't say that, would they? Nor would they think that you're being legalistic then if you avoid pornography or other forms of sexual enticement and sin or perversion. But it, there are certain commandments in the area of worship and, uh, and the Sabbath and like that that we, we can tend to confuse precision and legalism. And we need to be careful. Um, I, I've heard the story of, of the Puritan that was talking one Puritan nobleman to another nobleman and, and, and he was asked questions, well, why are you so precise? Because that's often Puritans would call precisionist. His answer was, because I serve a precise God. I serve a precise God. And as we look now at the prohibitions, you need to understand this, that uh, God is the one who's precise. These are not man-made laws. If they were man-made laws, they're legalistic. If there's God's laws, then I draw the line where he draws it. And I want to be careful. Not as an end in itself, but because I'm freed now for the good and holy purposes of the day. In Escondido, you know there's a farmer's market on Tuesday nights. The market day of the town. A little bit of leftovers from a bygone age. But now, in order to have a farmer's market, what do they do? Well, they have to close off two blocks of the city street. You can't use those blocks for their normal, everyday purpose. You can't drive a car down them. There's a lot of inconvenience. You know, I often try to go through town that time of day. I have to take a detour. There's lots of traffic then on that detour. and There's inconveniences involved uh, in that. But I guarantee you, I better respect the laws that have set aside those two blocks for a farmer's market because they're necessary for the transactions of the farmer's market and for the safety of those that are involved in the farmer's market. Well, that's what we have then. When I talk about the ordering of the day, here we see the necessity of the prohibitions, which, in fact, is the majority of what's stated in the fourth commandment. Verse 10, And the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work. You are your son or your daughter, your male or female servants, or your cattle, or your sojourner who stays with you. Now here, what we have are prohibitions that order the day, that set it aside for its holy purposes. And they basically cover three areas. 
personal, domestic, and social. Personally, we are to order the day to accomplish God's purpose by refraining from all manner of work outside of that which is either a work of necessity or mercy. Two Hebrew words are used here. In verse 9 we have the word labor and work. And it's that second word, work, that's used in verse 10. The first word has to do with uh, menial labor, uh, the, the hard physical labor that was so much a part of an agrarian culture. But the second term, work, is the broadest term possible. It embraces all kinds of work. The menial labor, but the mental labor of a businessman or whatever, all manner types and kinds of uh, human enterprise are proscripted by this prohibition when it says that in it you shall not do any work. Now it's interesting, you probably have noticed as you would look at the Old Testament in some of the uh, feast days that sometimes it talks about doing no servile labor. And uh, in in the festival days there was certain types of manual labor that you couldn't do, but you still could do other work. But here we see that uh, it is very broad. God cannot paint with a bigger brush than he does here when he says you shall not labor or do any work on this day. Of course, we'll see how the Savior explains that to us in terms of uh, works of necessity and mercy. So as I pointed out last night, it's not a day for our work. It's not a day for uh, getting a a head start on a business and flying out on Sunday night so you can be in town wherever your business is the next day, early Monday morning, and get in a whole day's work. You know what you've done? So you could have a whole day's work on Monday. You robbed God of a whole day of uh, his work on Sunday. Or the pastor who flies back on Sunday so that uh, uh, he can be back home uh, on Sunday night. Uh, again, we're cheating God so that we can uh, have uh, the other six days for ourselves. And we've got to switch that around and learn to cheat ourselves, uh, that God might have his whole day. After all, he gave us six, and we can surely work our travel into those six days so that his day is used. Uh, And so, uh, you know, unnecessary or lengthy travel, uh, work, whether it be... uh, unnecessary housework or going to the office or as I said last night, you young people uh, studying on Sunday, whatever it is, God says, don't do these things. It's not a day for your work. It's a day for my work. I'm freeing you up. And it really is great. You know, once this, once this sinks in, I don't have to think about it. And I was just talking to someone recently and they, they mentioned how much pleasure they'd found the fact that they didn't have to think about the pressures of the office on Sunday. They could turn it off and, and delight themselves in the Lord. And so we personally are to refrain from work. And then we note that your son or your daughter are not to do any work. And here we're reminded as parents and guardians that we are to structure the day for our children. And in doing so, to teach them both what not to do and what they get to do that can be a glorious privilege for them. 
And again, we're often remiss in this, you see. We kind of we put down certain rules and we kind of let them go rather than recognize that we are to structure the day for them. Now, we'll talk about that tomorrow afternoon in our practical session. But here, let me just say that uh, by example and by teaching, we structure the day for our children. We teach them then how to use their time so that they can devote themselves to the purposes of the day and we create an environment for them so the day is a day of joyful pleasure and blessing so that they will be able to say, uh, this indeed is the best day of all.